0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Three. I know you're excited. Like you are ready for this passage. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high and uh, one of these men will make sure that you have one so you can track with us. You are gonna want to do it this morning. Say riveting passage of scripture. Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. A couple of announcements while you're doing that. Holiday food baskets. Uh, just to remind you guys, we have the incredible opportunity to partner with Safeway stores, specifically the Safeway in Medford Center is the store that we're actually connected with. Um, all the money that they raise, you know how when you go through the line and they say, would you like to donate a dollar towards, that kind of stuff. All that money, they're using Heritage Christian Fellowship to facilitate distribution of meals to families throughout the valley. It's just a crazy, awesome opportunity for us to be able to partner um, with a local business and just be able to do some amazing things with them. So we're super excited about that. Um, I want to encourage you guys, if you can, if it works for you, man, go shop there. And when you go through that line, they they really want the the people at Safeway to feel the partnership that we have with them. So when you go through the line and they say, would you like to donate towards, what you can just say is, no, I give it church. No, don't do that. Um, Instead, actually just just tell them like, hey, you know what? We're partnered with you guys in this. We're part of Heritage Christian Fellowship, and we're going to be doing this to kind of work together. Like they literally want their the people in their store to feel the partnership they have with Heritage. And I just got to say, like so many times we as Christians can be like, oh, the world's against us. Oh, secular people boo hiss. They don't like us, all this. In this case, they're begging us to build relationships with their store so that we can keep doing this year after year after year with them. Like it's just laid at our feet. Amen. So take advantage of that. Um, the last week to give towards the Thanksgiving baskets is next Sunday. So keep that in mind too. If you want to give towards that and help us with that, next Sunday is the cutoff for that. And then also part of our um, uh, volunteer opportunities that are tied to that is in the distribution of the food. And so people have been asking, when will we start delivering some of the baskets and stuff? And These dates are tentative, they depend on some of the Safeway stuff, but they look pretty good right now if you want to pencil them down. Sunday, November 19th, right after our second service, um, will be opportunity for everybody to gather together, we'll have a big pep rally, it's going to be a lot of fun, and then send you guys out to deliver food throughout the valley. And then also Monday, November 20th, and that one will be in conjunction um, with our community partners, so Every Child, Mercy's Gate, stuff like that. So pencil those dates down, save some time, you're going to want to be a part of that for sure. Also Rogue Valley Mobile Pack, Feed My Starving Children program. Um, the early sign-ups were so incredibly responsive. Um, there were over 120 people that signed up to volunteer just from Heritage alone, much less all the other churches that are out there. And the response was so overwhelming that they actually upped the number of meals that they're wanting to pack to create even more opportunity for people to be able to serve and get involved. So there's like another 240, I think it is, slots that are now available. So if you missed sign-ups before and you want to get involved in this, man, it's a killer family opportunity to be able to get together. It's fun. It's high energy doing real legitimate practical work. That's just going to be amazing. Um, they will now be packing instead of the original goal was 163,000 meals for kids in starving places. Um, it's now going to be 202,000 meals. So um, it's going to be an awesome opportunity and it an increase the volunteer need from 700 and... 20 to 960. So that means you're gonna, we're talking about a 1,000 people that are going to be getting together to do this. It's going to be amazing. So please don't miss out. Talk to the Locados, go to the Connect Desk, or go online at rvmobilepack.com, as in Rogue Valley, rvmobilepack.com. And then finally, next week, the Flip Side of 50 group is doing a Dutch lunch at Wild River Pizza. Um, Bob, we had debate on this in the first service. Can you help us answer this? Flip side of 50. If you're 50, are you just in purgatory? Because it's like the flip side, you have to wait until you're 51 to be a part of that? Um, no? We're not legalistic, we're not legalistic and we're not, we don't believe in purgatory, so 50? Okay, so if you're 50, you can be in the flip side of 50. If you're 49, stay away from Wild River next week. But <laughs> we're totally kidding, totally kidding, totally kidding, totally kidding. Um, but Make sure you get involved in that. And if you guys aren't a part of and haven't got to experience some of the stuff that Bob and Kelly and the gang and the flip side group are doing, man, you're missing out. So make sure you jump in there. You're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to really, really be blessed and ministered to. So that's it. Now, I'm so excited for this. This is the most riveting scripture you will ever read. This is the one that every Monday morning you wake up for devotions. You go, oh, I'm going straight to this. This is what I'm going to read. And so in honor of the word of the Lord, will you stand with me as we read this? Disclaimer before I begin. I am not a Hebrew scholar. So the names that I'm about to read... We're just going to see what we get. I'm warning you this because like yesterday I was going through and I was trying to like write phonetic, like, you know what I mean? Like write near the names that are hard and you're like, just say it like this, like a little cheat sheet. And like 20 minutes in, I was like, I just, I really don't even have time to put this whole thing together with everything else. So we're just going to see what we get, but then we're going to talk about it. All right. But it is the word of the Lord in Luke chapter three, beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos. If you're wondering, is he going to read all these? Yes. The son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Math. That's what it says. You're laughing at the Bible? Shame on you. The son of Simeon, the son of Josec, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonanan, the son of Rasa, Reis, excuse me, the son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. When you go high at the end, that means you're not sure. You know what I mean? Shealtiel? Uh, where were we? Son of Neri, verse 28, the son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Kosem, son of. El-Madam, son of Ur, we like that one, son of Joshua, son of Eleazar, son of Joram, son of Mathath, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Meliah, son of Menon, son of Matthiah, son of Nathan, son of David, amen for David, like we just gotta, yes, the son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nahashan, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, son of our son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We laugh, we chuckle a little bit, but this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, will you show us something of you even through this through a passage that's maybe seems boring or unimportant or or nothing really to offer today lord we know that your word does not return void we know that this is inspired by the spirit of god and we ask that your spirit would teach us this morning show us what to do with this help us to understand you better do something in us through your word that we can carry from this place for your glory Lord, to do that, we need your Spirit. So, Lord, may your Spirit move, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my rock, my King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Oh, I've been excited to teach this one. <laughs> I really have been. I've been excited to teach this one. I made sure that I got this one because I'm excited about this. I am a fan of the Bible. I love the Bible. I love the challenges of Scripture. I love digging and all these kind of stuff I do. And the Bible is a complicated book. It's it's such a unique book because in one sense, the Bible is written in such a way that you can have no understanding of God. You can have no understanding of who Jesus is, no understanding of Scripture, no none of the historical context, and yet you can pick this up and just read it, and the Spirit of God can move and teach and instruct and save you through this, and yet you could be the greatest scholar the world has ever seen, and you can dig for hours on end, and you can probe the depths as much as you want, and you will never exhaust the Scriptures. They are huge, massive, intricate, complicated, and sometimes difficult. And so as a result, when you approach challenging passages, there can be different approaches. People can come to passages differently based on what they've been taught, based on what they've learned, based on what their history is, whatever the case may be. And so you can have different views about passages, different views on how to approach them, how to handle them, what to do with some of the texts here. And harder passages tend to show those differences more. And we have that today. We have a genealogy, one of the most skipped passages in the bible and you're like no not me yes you you liar you do too when you're reading through no one gets up on monday morning and decides i oh, i just want to spend some time with god opens up their bible starts reading genealogies and expects like the sun peels in through the sky you start hearing oh ah, in the background as you're reading and you're just like oh son of joshua son of eleazar like most people don't do that honestly Most people either skip it completely or you skim it like, yeah, I get this. I was mad at Joshua. I remember him. Eh, All right. Chapter four, verse one, and kind of move on. So what do we do with a passage like this? What do we do with boring passages? What do we do with? Stuff like this that seems like, like, what's the benefit to me of reading this or studying this? What? Why is this worth my time if tomorrow morning, in my devotional time with God, I'm reading through the book of Luke, and I come to this genealogy? What do I do with it, and why does this matter? Hopefully we can make some sense of that. But let, let's let's talk about how people tend to approach hard passages in Scripture. One of the ways that people tend to approach them, as I've said before, is just skip it. Just go, uh, it's... I don't really know what to do with this. I don't, it doesn't really mean anything to me, and I'm in my devotions, and so I'm looking for like God to speak a word to me. I want to be able to say, "Man, I, just, I heard from the Lord this morning, and this genealogy thing's not really doing it for me. I'm not totally sure why it's there. I'll just sort of move on. We can end up skipping them. But there's a, there's a challenge, because here's the reality: these words are just as inspired by the spirit of God as John 3:16 as Psalm 23. As Romans 5, as the passages that we want to read, as the passages that bless our heart. It is the same Spirit of God. It is the same in authoral intent, if you will, in the background. They are just as inspired and just as important to us as anything else in the Scripture. And so if we start approaching Scripture and we go, uh, that one doesn't really speak to me, I'll skip that. Where does that stop? I mean, you you end up in places where you're like, I like this, I don't like this, I'll skip that, I'm going to read that, instead of taking in the full counsel of God, and maybe even wrestling with God through some of the harder passages and going, Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this? Don't be spoon-fed. And don't skip the inspired word of God. Now, I think we would all agree. We go, yeah, this is, that's true. It's all inspired and we don't want to skip that. That's true. Um, So what do you do with it? Well, some people will take things like this and they'll, um, I'm going to use the phrase, hyper-spiritualize them. Hyper-spiritualize them. And this is what I mean. You sit down and you're reading the text and you're like, man, there's this list and it seems really boring, but this is the word of God and this is written by the spirit of God and this is speaking to me. So it's got to mean something. There's got to be something in there. There's got to be like a hidden meaning and I'm just missing it. And so I need to figure this out and kind of dig in here and see if I can do this. Um, I I actually was taught this and have been and a lot. There's there's a lot of people that actually teach this um, with a specific genealogy in the book of Genesis. Maybe some of you guys have seen this before. There's a genealogy in the book of Genesis. And in it, it starts with Adam and it works its way all the way through Noah. And, and it seems like this just innocuous, meaningless, oh, this guy was born, and he lived a long time until this part, and he had this kid, and then he died. And then this guy was born, and he lived a long time, and then he had this kid, and then he died. And it just kind of works through this sort of long list. And it seems like another one of those boring passages that you're like, yeah, let's just get to know in the flood. But then someone showed me, they were like, listen, no, there's more to it than that. There's a, there's meaning in this that you don't even realize, And they said, it's based on the meanings of the names. So let me give you guys, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Can we put the first slide up here? If you go through this genealogy that's in the book of Genesis, they would say, here's how it works. Adam, his name means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means the despairing. Noah means rest or comfort. And in order, if you take those name meanings, what do you got? Well, you read through it and you see, man appointed. Uh, you went back. Go back. Go back. You're, you're spoiling my joke. Don't give away the punchline. <laughs> man appointed, mortal, sorrow. The blessed God shall come down. Teaching, his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. That's pretty cool, Right? It's like the gospel right there. And man, when I learned that, I was blown away. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, man, look how inspired God is that he's he's putting this genealogy together and even crafted into this. People not even knowing the names they're picking and they're actually telling the gospel in a way that I didn't know is unbelievable. But there's a problem with that. Most actual Hebrew scholars would say, that's not what some of those names mean, man, that's a stretch, and that's taking this and saying, it's kind of like this, and twisting a little bit on that, and if you just want to take an actual literal approach and say, what do those actual names mean, well, it means like it looks like this. Man, appointed, human being, possession, and that's maybe because it's debated, praise God, slave descent, dedicated, man of the javelin, powerful to make low, rest, so which one's right? Which one's right? What are we supposed to do with it? And if, if the, the name meanings in the other one that teach us the gospel, even through the genealogy, aren't right, then what do we do with the genealogy when it's there? I mean, and what does that tell us? Man of the javelin? What does that even mean? What do we do with that? Well, the problem with that kind of first approach, it's sort of an allegorical approach of scripture that says I need to find out sort of the meaning behind the story or the thing that's there. Here's the challenge with that. If you take that approach, I I started doing it sort of with everything when I first learned that. Like, man, look at that. All these names mean this and God's actually telling us something that it's just like you have to discover that meaning. So I started reading all these other passages and trying to do the exact same thing with all these other passages. So for example, in Genesis chapter two, In Genesis chapter 2, there's this, this account that's describing Eden and God's creation. It talks about this river that splits into four rivers, and the four rivers create the boundaries around Eden. And it seems like this sort of innocuous, sort of boring text, like he's just naming these things off. And I'm like, oh, there's more to it than that, though. I know how God works. There's like a hidden thing in here, and I need to figure it out. And so I literally sat down one day and just started digging like through the internet and through resources, trying to figure out what all these names mean, because I'm like, there's no way God's just talking about some random rivers. There's got to be something here. And so I looked into them, and I found that the Pishon River means free-flowing. Gihon means gushing fountain. Tigris means sharp rapids. And Euphrates means the one that makes bountiful. You know what that sounds like? Descriptions of rivers, right? Like that's sort of what that desc- sounds like. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that river has sharp rapids, and that river's free flowing. That river's like a gushing fountain, and this is the river that makes things bountiful. Like it just seems that way, but I, but I'm trying to dig more. I'm like, no, there's got to be more in that. So, oh, God, whose spirit is free flowing, wants to be a gushing fountain in me. That I would avoid the sharp rapids and I would be one who points people to the one who makes things bountiful. Praise be to God. That's what that passage means. That's what I would do with that. You know, the, the difficulty with that though is if that's our approach to scripture, then our interpretation of passages ends up depending more on our creativity than on what's actually written. And that's a challenge. And then on top of that, The interpretation we bring out of it is based on the theological understandings that we already have. It's not that you're learning something new out of that text. You're taking your belief system that's already there and you're creatively pushing it into this particular text and you're speaking. You say, well, why is that a problem? Because you might be on theologically solid ground, but the next guy might not be. And the next guy might not be. And so as he starts to try to do the same things with Scripture that he's learning from you, it can lead to weirdness. And honestly, guys, this is where modern liberal interpretation techniques with Scripture came from. It was early evangelicals with good hearts approaching Scripture from a completely different perspective than what's actually there and trying to wrap it into tangible experiences of their own. And it leads to questions like, what does this text mean to you? What does this text mean to me? Instead of just, what does this text mean to God who wrote it? And so you can start off with good intentions, but that can lead to really, really bad places. Now, could God Sovereign over all things, create and do such a thing where there's lineages being laid out and even the names mean something and he's speaking to us through all of that. Is God sovereign enough to do something like that through scripture? Absolutely. Is that how God normally works? Is he hiding things in scripture for us to try to have to figure out after the fact? What do we do with those things? So we we don't want to skip it. And we don't want to hyper-spiritualize it and try to turn something into something that maybe it's not. And you go, well, then, Jeff, you just gave me more questions than what I started with. Like, what do I do with this? Like, look, that's okay. It's okay to admit that these are hard passages to figure out what to do with in advance. It's, it's, they're challenges, right? It's okay to say this, especially when you start looking at other accounts in the Scriptures. Like, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. There's gospels, the, these, the four different gospel accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, differ in a lot of different places. Now, I'm not saying that one says one thing and one says the complete opposite and only one can be true, so there's error. That's not what I mean. But I do mean that they're different in things that they account and in things that they say. And let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. How many of you in here have a red letter Bible right now before you raise your hand? Okay, quite a few of you. Red letter Bible, that's a cool thing. And it's, it's nice. that. What's the intent of the red letters? Those are what words? The words of Jesus Christ. The exact words of Jesus Christ. That's what those words are. Now be careful. There's a little bit of a theological challenge even simply in that. Because you can read into that to say these words in red are actually more inspired than the rest of these words in black. And that's not true. You can get to a place where you go, if I really want to know truth, I'll just read the red and not read the rest when the Spirit of God inspired all of it. Amen? But in the red-letter Bible, the goal is put the words of Christ in red so we know exactly what Jesus said. Okay, but there's challenges between gospel accounts. So, for example, let's put this verse up. Mark eight twenty-seven. Christ and his disciples are going into Caesarea Philippi. This is the story that many of us know. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You guys know this story, right? Many of you do if you went to Sunday school and stuff. So in the book of Mark, the text says this. Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So the question that Christ says Who do people say that I am? If you have a red-letter Bible, those words in your Bible would be in red. Now, there's a different account. In Matthew 16, we're given the same story. Look what Matthew 16 says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, which one should be read? Did he say Son of Man, or did he say I? And what do you do with that? What do you do with the challenges between the two? And does, does one of them come off now as true because those are the words of God and this is the one that isn't? What's going on there and why would they be different? Why wouldn't they say the exact same thing? It's the same story, same God. Guy, the guys were all right there. Why, why is it different? Well, let me show you why this is different. The reason I bring this up is because in, Cha- in Luke, what we're looking at today, there's this lineage of Jesus Christ. There's also a genealogy in Matthew and the two are different. Very, very different. You go, Well, how, how could a genealogy be different? Like, you're, you're born to who you're born. How can they be different? In, in Matthew, Jesus is taken back to Abraham, and it stops there. So it follows the lineage of Christ from Jesus Christ to Abraham. In Luke, it starts with Jesus Christ and goes all the way back to Adam. And you say, well, why, why would they do that? And that's not the only difference, by the way. The the other difference is they're identical between Abraham and David. So when you look at the two genealogies in these two Gospels, they're identical between Abraham and David. But from David to Christ, they differ vastly. In fact, there's only a couple of names that show up on the same list. And you go, then what do we even do with this? Why would this be in the Bible? They're not even the same. Is one inspired and one's not Is one worthy of our time and one not? And is there error? What's going on here? Like, what's the purpose of all that? Well, let me help you out with that on why this can be this way. And it's going to help us, I think, um, unlock how we should approach this actual particular passage. When we're approaching difficult passages and trying to understand and interpret the Bible, there's a few things that I think we need to keep in mind. I'm going to give you four of them right now this morning. The first one is this. Remember this. All scripture is equally inspired. All scripture. All scripture is profitable. All scripture is reliable. All scripture is equally inspired. So when we come to difficulties, when we come to things like this that don't seem to line up, if we can't make sense of it, the problem always turns out. It always rests on how we're approaching the text and how we're interpreting the text or applying the text, not in the text itself. The scriptures have held up the test of time for many, many, many years. The conflicts we run into are usually based on our approach, maybe taking scripture and using it in a way it wasn't intended to be used in the first place, things of that nature. But the scriptures are inspired and reliable and authoritative. Every word. Amen? Every word. And God's word does not return void. So these genealogies or any other difficult passage that you come to in Scripture, we need to understand, it's there for a specific purpose because God promises us that his word will not return void. In other words, it will accomplish its purpose. So it's not just random. It's not just, "Eh, we'll just throw it in there. It doesn't really mean anything. Let's move on to the other thing. And it's authoritative and trustworthy, even though we look at them and go, I don't totally know what to do with it. And number two, number one, the Bible's equally inspired. Number two, the Bible is for all people in all cultures in all times. The Bible's for all people in all cultures in all times. And here's what I mean by that we have a tendency to look at Scripture through our American Western lens because that's who we are, it's where we live, it's the culture that we're born into. And so things that matter to us, things that are important to us, things that minister to us, things that speak to us, things that we value, those things get much more press, much more attention than things that maybe aren't quite as interesting or boring or culturally important where we live. But that's not necessarily the case everywhere else. I'll give you a great story. There's a gal named Lynette Oaks. And she had a couple of family members, I don't, I don't know how the, they were related, but Jess and Jenny Oaks, and she wrote a book about them. It was called Hidden People, How a Remote New Guinea Culture Was Brought Back from the Brink of Extinction. And in this book, she tells the story of how Jess and Jenny Oaks had gone to this people group, this tribe in Papua New Guinea, For the purpose of translating the Bible into that tribe's native language. They had no scripture, nothing had ever been translated into their dialect or language before, nothing. And they wanted to go translate the Bible there. This particular people group was down to 111 people. They were 111 people away from absolute extinction. They had gone through severe diseases and stuff, and they were literally on the brink of extinction. And these two people, these two women chose that group on purpose because they wanted to show that God cares about even the smallest. And so they sought out the smallest surviving people group they could find. They found these people in Papua New Guinea. They got translators on board, and they went to this place, and they began translating. They had to sit there, live with the people, learn their scriptures, learn, I'm sorry, learn their language, their dialect, all that stuff, and begin ministering the gospel to them. So as they're there, translators are working through and they're taking the scriptures that we have, translating it into their dialect. I can't even, you think the Bible names are hard to pronounce. You should have seen the name of their dialect. It's crazy. And so they're trying to translate it into that. And one night, the translator's there and going through writing and they're in this text, in Luke chapter 3, in the genealogy. And the translator suddenly gets just super excited. Super excited. It's was like, listen, listen. We need to grab the whole tribe together now, especially the tribal leaders. We need to read this to them tonight. And In the book, she says, I, we didn't understand. Like, what? why is this so important? No, no, no. Tonight, get everyone together. So they got the tribal leaders together. They got everyone there. And they came out with this sheet that had this on. It's Luke 3. It's just this genealogy. The same thing we just read. Laid it out in front of them and read through it. And they said that as they read this, the, the villagers, the, this particular tribal group, they became stone silent, just in awe. All this stuff that we read through, going, I don't even know what to do with this. What is this name? And we're kind of chuckling, like, I don't know what that name means. Their reaction was completely different. Their reaction was awe and total silence. And when they finished reading, They handed the sheet of paper to him and the people took the paper and they're just looking at it in absolute amazement. And she's saying, what is going on? And at that point, the tribal leader spoke up and said this. Why didn't you share uh, this with us at the beginning? No one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. It's only real people who record their genealogies. Jesus must be a real person. Jesus must have been a real man on earth. He is not white man's magic. What you are teaching us is real. So here's this text, and this is the the contrast I wanted you guys to see on purpose. There's a text that we can look at and go, what do we even do with this? What is that name? But a different culture is reading the same thing and in awe, going, he's real. So sometimes we need to understand those cultural blinders can affect how we look at some of the scriptures. Now, what? why do I say that? Because Luke, I said, connects Jesus to who? All the way back. Luke connects Jesus to who? Starts with an A. Adam. Matthew connects Jesus to who? Abraham. That's exactly right. Why? Okay. Matthew is writing with a purpose. He's connecting for Jews, Jesus to Abraham. Why is that important if you're a Jew? Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And so in the Matthew genealogy, it's different and it stops at Abraham because he's writing with a purpose. This is what brings us to number four. Number four is this. The Bible is one big story, not a collection of individual stories. It's one big story, not a collection of individual stories. We need a big-picture view of what's going on here because the narratives that we have are historical constructs. These are historical constructs. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. I actually That was number three, by the way. I skipped that just so you know. They're historical constructs. So let's take, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. If you sit down and just read the Sermon on the Mount, it takes, I don't know, eight minutes You can read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. But let me ask you how long did Jesus teach? All day. Scriptures talk about by the end, they're like, we have to feed these people. Like, we've been here all day. But the account that we have is eight minutes. Now, we don't have the luxury of tape recorders and digital recordings and all of that kind of stuff. But when the author's inspired by God, it's not that they forgot stuff and, man, we sure miss out because we didn't get all that stuff. But what they're recording, they're recording for a purpose because they're telling a story to a specific group of people. So, for example... Matthew connects Jesus to Abraham because he's writing to Jews to say that this is the promised one. In Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to be a blessing, this is what I'm going to do through you, he's telling the story and using a genealogy to point the Jewish people to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Now Luke goes from Jesus to who? Come on, nice and loud. You guys sound like the 830 service. Luke goes from Jesus to who? Adam. Why? Luke's writing to Gentiles. Luke's the guy who traveled with Paul. Luke's writing to a Roman officer. Luke's writing to Gentiles. And so he's not going to stop with Abraham and make it look like, see, he's the father of the Jewish people. He's not writing to Jewish people. He goes all the way to to Adam to say that this is someone who relates to all mankind. It's not that the story's are wrong, but the histories are different in them. They're not the same, and this is what they're actually trying to do with that. And so we need to understand as we approach the Scriptures that there's a big-picture story going here. There's a big picture going here. And so to understand this, we're going to invite Luke's teacher, Paul, to, to minister to us and to speak to us through the Scriptures. Luke traveled with Paul everywhere he went. Remember, Luke wrote both Luke and what other book? Acts which ends up telling by the end the primary story of all the missionary journeys of Paul. So no one got taught by Paul more than Luke did. And I think Paul gives us some context that can help us understand some of the things that Luke is actually doing in this genealogy. And what I'm trying to do here is this. We need to understand these aren't individual stories that just are kind of pieced together. The genealogy in Luke is part of something much, much bigger as is this text in Romans. And so they're all combining to tell one big story. So let's look at this passage in Romans. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, we have it on a slide, it says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Let me interrupt this right here. The biblical creation account tells us that God created man and woman in Eden in what the Hebrew word is known for, or known as shalom. It means we would say a lot of times if we're using our current language, we'd say, "Man, they, they lived in Eden. They were in paradise." Some might say, or perfection. The Hebrew word for what that was like is shalom. And shalom means more than just peace, as as we tend to interpret it, um, because we tend to look at peace as absence of conflict. Um, But there's as much more than, it's not just absence of conflict, it's right order of relationships. It's not just that there's no bad things, it's that everything is rightly working in certain rhythm. So in the Hebrew concept of shalom, speaking of Adam and Eve would say that their relationship between Adam, Eve, and God was rightly ordered. The relationship between Adam and Eve themselves was rightly ordered. There was shalom between the two of them. And then the relationship between them and the environment around them was of shalom. There was peace There was rightly ordered around them. So what does that mean? It means more than just absence of sin. It, It means the presence of good. It means all wine is good wine, but there's not intoxication or alcoholism. It means all food is good food, but there's not gluttony. It means Adam and Eve are literally running around naked, but there's no sinful lust. It means things are pure. There's a rhythm, and things are rightly ordered. But then you know how the story goes. Genesis 3 comes. Adam does and chooses to willingly rebel against God, eat of that which he was not allowed to eat. And in that moment, all those relationships fractured. Everything broke. The shalom that had been there was ripped in every area. We see it in the accounts, don't we? I mean, we see Adam and Eve hiding from God. God's the one coming looking for them. They're hiding from God. Their relationship with God is no longer intact the way it was. We see Adam and Eve hiding from each other. They're covering one another. They're suddenly where they're naked. There's shame. There's embarrassment. Later, there's blame and finger pointing. This shalom that existed between the two of them is now broken and then there's a fracturing of shalom between them and the environment around them. Suddenly, the garden that was complicit with Adam in the work that went along with him is now going to fight against him. There's going to be pestilence and weeds and thorns. And your work is now not going to be characterized by joy, but by sweat from your brow. Things are going to be challenging now. All of this shalom has been fractured. And here in Romans 5, when it says... That just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, what it's telling us is the most tangible, visible marker of that fracturing of shalom that we have is the reality of death. And it is hanging over us. You know what's common about every single name we read on those genealogies? They're dead. Every genealogy, dead. We face this. But it's more even than just this physical death that one day we're going to get old and die. It's a death on every level. It's spiritual. It's relational. It's emotional. Nothing quite brings that shalom and peace that we've been looking for all along. So you can have the best relationship in the world. And it's almost like we're just bumping into a ceiling. We just can't get through. Money possessions, all of these things. Like we can seek to find a way, I'm gonna fix what's broken in me through these things and it just doesn't seem to get us there. The the human spirit is is just incapable of ascending to the places that it was designed to ascend. There's just this, we can't get there. Now, here's the challenge though, because it's worse than we think take a look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Moses is the one who received what? The law, all right? So Moses received the law, and he's saying death reigned from Adam to Moses when the law was given. Even over those whose whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And I think that just makes obvious sense. We don't need to explain that at all, right? So moving on. That was a joke. It fell flat. Should have canceled that after first service. Okay, so here's what Paul's saying here. This is huge. He says that death spread to all of mankind because of one man's sin, which was Adam. But the sin that we tend to associate that with is different than what he's saying it's associated with. Because we tend to associate sin and all of that stuff with outward actions, don't we? I mean, if you grew up in church, a lot of us, man, I grew up in a pretty legalistic church growing up, though I don't think they were intending to be. Um, But, man, that was what we learned. Learn the rules. Learn what to do. Learn what to do. Learn not what to do. Um, youth group was all about making sure we didn't listen to rock music Didn't have sex, didn't do drugs um, Ten commandments everywhere else Like We were just taught how to be good, moral Christians And Then we sang songs about some of these things Some of them were the, the weirdest songs in the world I've talked about this one before um, And some of you guys remember this The Revelation 21-8 song You guys know that song? We'd literally sing It's like the Frere Jacques theme You know what I mean? Revelation, Revelation, 21-8, 21-8. Eight, eight. Yeah, Sunday school, we can sing that. Problem is next, verse, next line. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Burn, 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 burn. We sang that in Sunday school. And we're just stupid kids getting into the burn part. Like, yeah, burn, burn, burn. If we had just stopped and thought about what we're... We're singing that Jesus hates us. Like, what is that? Why do you learn a song like that? Because you're teaching kids. Don't lie. Behave. Fall in line. Do what's right. But Paul here says... That the real root of that death that Sarah, he, he says, listen, death reigned before the law came. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, our problem's not just something we do. Our problem is something we're born with. Parents know this. Every child born is a little Lord. Every child born demands to be served. Feed me. Change me. Play with me. Pick me up. Put me down. Burp me. Not so hard. Feed me. And if you don't do what they want, anger, wrath, rage, even literal violence I mean, look, I, I used to do children's ministry for years, too, and Pastor Brent could probably agree to that with what's going on here. Every so often, doesn't matter what church you're at, every so often you get a biter. Every so often you get a kid in the kid's wing that's a biter, and you have to deal with it, and you have to have the awkward meetings with parents and all that kind of stuff, right? Now, listen, not for a minute do I think that that kid's learning that at home. Is he watching mom and dad fight and going, oh, if I don't get what I want, I just bite. That's what I do. Like, is that what it is? Honey, take out the trash. I don't want to. Chomp. I should remember that in Sunday school. That worked. Like, you're not teaching your kid to do that. You're not modeling that. Is that how that goes down in your house? If you're like us, we just ignore each other for a few days. We don't bite. That's how it goes down, right? But no, this is what kids do. They just fight. Anger. Wrath. Not Taught why. I mean, David himself even said that surely I was born in iniquity, which means bent or broken. That I was born broken, I was born bent. And I've got this constant brokenness that I'm trying to do something about. And then what ends up happening is when we try to be our own lords, when we try to be the ones that say, okay, everyone else now exists to fix this thing with me, what are we doing? We're turning to other people who are all also broken and expecting that they are going to be able to fix what's going on with us. And so we put... Way too much emphasis on certain relationships. We put way too high expectations on other people. Or we turn to other things that are in the world around us that are also broken and try to use those to fulfill us. Money, sex, relationships, all these kind of things. And we just keep banging our heads on a ceiling, seemingly unable to get to where we're supposed to go. It's such an inadequate thing. To look to someone else as gonna be able to as they're gonna be able to fix what's broken in you? But then when we try to do it ourselves, we find that those things don't work either. So what do you do? How do you fix that? The answer: you can't. You can't. But, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, look, death entered in through one man. And once that happened, we were born in it. We were born with it. And we are unable to fix ourselves. Yet, through one man, the greater than Adam, through Jesus Christ himself, there's now a new... I mean, that's why the scriptures say, how do you fix that brokenness that's in our heart? You get a new one. And so the scriptures say, you must be born again. I'll take that heart of stone. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll give you a new heart of flesh. And then God starts working in us. What is he saying? Like, you're not going to just get better. You need a savior. And you go, what in the world does this have to do with the genealogy in Luke? Jeff, you have gotten way off base. Maybe, but I don't think so. You know why the genealogy is in Luke? Because in Genesis three, when that sin happened, when that fracture occurred, when death entered, sin entered, pain entered, all those things entered, God came looking for them. You'll notice that in the scriptures. Adam's not looking for God. God's the one that says, Adam, where are you? And as he comes and deals with it, and he's a God of justice and mercy, so he covers them, but then deals with sin as well. But he makes a pronouncement in Genesis 3, chapter 15. He says, "I will," put, and he's speaking to the snake at this point, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He says to Eve, someone's going to come from your lineage someone's going to come. One of your descendants one day is going to deal with all of this brokenness. One day, a descendant's going to come and that thing that has fractured the shalom that you loved so much and that you will now spend the rest of your life wishing was still there, one day one of your descendants is going to come and he's going to deal with the enemy and he's going to make things right. Why is the genealogy in Luke? Because he follows That lineage, from Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam, it's one of the constant recurring themes in the entire book of Luke. It's the issue of fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise that was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 13. And it's a fulfillment that wasn't just given to Israel, that ties back into all of mankind. If by one man Adam's sin spread to the world, then from one man Christ, life will spread to all of those same descendants. So what do we do with the genealogy when we read it? You can skip it, or you could hyper-spiritualize it, or you could do all those kind of things, or you could read this and go, this is real. These are the names. God promised that he was going to send a Savior, and, and he, he did. Here are the names. Here's the reality of it. God is faithful. And Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah we've been waiting for. So you approach the scriptures, not so much about you, but about him. And then you you pull that application out of it. So then what do I do with that? I go, all right, God promised he's going to put the broken things back together. So what do I do with my life right now when it's broken? I could turn to other people. And I could say, I need you to fix me. I need you to get in line. I need you to do this. I need you to apologize. I need you to come back. I need you to go away. I need you to whatever the case may be. You could do that. But the history of humanity says you're going to just bang your head against the ceiling and you're never going to get anywhere. Luke points us to something better. Luke says, the one who has been promised to put the broken things back together has come. His name is Jesus Christ. And we can turn to him. And so I can read that genealogy and remember, he's real, he's faithful. God made a promise, and it's been fulfilled. And so even in this, I can be reminded, I need to turn to him. And then it's interesting to find out that it's attached to what? The temptation of Christ, where Christ is going to be tempted to look to other places than the Father. And we can remember, no, 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 no. My fulfillment is in Christ. I'll even find joy through other things, be it relationships, be it money, be things like that. Not in them themselves, but when they find their fulfillment in Christ. And so I can celebrate God's faithfulness and remember that all roads from the very beginning point to who? Christ. And that's what you can do with a genealogy. Amen? Will you guys stand with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that you are real, that you, Jesus, are the fulfillment of the promise, that everything we've been looking for, everything we've been waiting for, it is all in you. Lord, help us not to turn to other things or other people or to ourselves But may we look to you. In the same way the Jewish people were to be looking to the Messiah to set them free, may we continue to look to you, Lord, as our deliverer. When we deal with broken things in life, Lord, may we look to you to heal them. When we have death in our spirit, when we have death in our relationships, when we have death in our emotions, when we have death physically, Lord, may we look to you as the one who's going to put things together. Or as Colossians says, you're the one who holds all things together. You're the one who brings healing. You're the prince of peace. You are our shalom. So we again, through something seemingly as meaningless as a genealogy, are reminded of how good you are, how real you are, and that you fulfill your promises. So may we trust you now more than ever. May we turn to you now more than ever. And may we carry this hope to a world that is broken, fractured, and desperately needs it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you guys Wednesday night at 6.30.